This is episode three of Functional First podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jeremy Lewis about shoulder pain, shoulder special tests, and exercise versus surgery. Thank you for joining us today. Can you give us a brief background, who you are, what got you interested in the shoulder, and what a typical week looks like for you? Okay, well, thank you very much. My name is Jeremy Lewis, and I am a physiotherapist, a consultant physiotherapist. I was born in New Zealand, and I grew up in Australia, and I currently practice in England and the UK, United Kingdom. I work three days a week clinically with shoulder patients, two days a week in university, doing my own research, supervising doctoral and master's students, and I have the great privilege of traveling, being invited to different countries, such as here in Canada, to teach my, my shoulder course. And I became really interested in the shoulder a long time ago now, primarily because it's such an important joint for upper limb function, and it's such an interesting joint in terms of, of how it's so dependent upon muscle and muscle control for its function, for its stability and for movement. And also I'm very interested in evolution and evolutionary theory and there's a lot around shoulder in terms of evolutionary theory into how we developed and evolved a shoulder that we've got now. So we're going to discuss some shoulder hypotheses today. Can you describe each hypothesis, how it started, and what the research supports? The first one being shoulder impingement. Okay, so the, the idea of subacromial impingement syndrome, the hypothesis surrounding it, was first introduced to the literature in around about 1972 by Charles Neer, American orthopedic surgeon. And, and his hypothesis was that 95% of all rotator cuff pathology is caused by irritation by, by the acromion. And uh, it's very interesting for any clinician interested in the shoulder to go back to the 1972 and 1983 papers because what you'll, what you'll recognize is that these aren't really research papers. I guess in today's terms, we might call these blogs in the sense that it's somebody with a, a lot of clinical uh, experience and a lot of, a lot of clinical mileage writing down what his thoughts are in terms of what's causing this very common problem. So the, um, the idea of impingement, this irritation by the acromion, really took force and a lot of people then assumed that it was the, the, the cause of the majority of shoulder problems. And, and Nia's hypothesis was that if conservative treatment, exercise therapy didn't work, that the best thing to do would be to, to um, remove the, the offending bit of bone, the acromion, through either open procedure or what more recently has become closed arthroscopic procedures. However, a lot of the original theories in terms of um, the acromion causing the damage have not been necessarily supported in terms of where the damage is actually observed in the tendon, not supported by uh, serious uncertainties about the, the relationship between the fact that you can do exercise and get just as good results with exercise as you can with surgery. And that's been shown in, in a large number of studies now that have followed patients for one year, two years, five years, and, and even longer. So the, a lot of the hypotheses are, are not well supported. So there's an assumption that, that the surgery is, is curative, but there's a very substantial possibility that the surgery is a placebo. We know that um, when pain is the patient's main complaint, 
that invasive procedures such as surgery are more likely to be to placebo effect. We also know that following the surgery that many patients will rest for maybe six weeks, maybe 12 weeks, relatively rest after the procedure, which means that the surgery is slowing the shoulder down. And one of the main treatments for someone who's got a tendon-related problem or muscle tendon-related problem is, is actually slowing the shoulder down and then doing a graduated exercise program. So another uncertainty about the surgery is, is it just slowing the shoulder down in order for a person to gradually rehab the shoulder? So there's uncertainty about placebo, there's uncertainty about the actual mechanism of what the surgery is doing. We know that there's research that says there's no relationship between um, the acromial size and symptoms. There is a relationship between acromial size and tears, but there's another problem because there's a very poor correlation between actually having a tear observed in imaging and symptoms. So many people will have uh, rotator cuff tears but no symptoms coming from them. So it's, it's a very important question that you've asked, but it's, it takes a, a substantial period of time to answer it. And, and there is a lot of uncertainty about the impingement process. And I guess one of the, the biggest issues that we're facing at the moment is that um, not only is the impingement addressed in some, in some people's eyes by removing the acromion, but because the acromion is causing tears within the tendon, a lot of surgeons will feel it's also important to repair the tear. Now we know that uh, a very uh, important study that was published in 2015, uh, an HTA funded study by a, an English uh, UK orthopedic surgeon, Andrew Carr, who was leading the study, has shown that when you repair the tears, a lot of people then go on to re-tear at one year and there's no significant difference between those that have an intact repair at one year and those that have a failed repair at one year, which again suggests that some of the structural hypotheses as proposed by Nia and others may be not as solid as, as, we, as we think. You just touched on rotator cuff tears as well. Are there any other hypotheses surrounding tears that you'd like to discuss? Well, a lot of people will be given a diagnosis of bursitis or rotator cuff tendonitis or rotator cuff tendinopathy, which sort of implicates the tendon and related structures, but we don't really know where a patient's symptoms are coming from, and it's, it's hypothesized that it might be coming from the tendon tissue, the bursal tissue. The term that I like to use and the term I publish, uh, I've published with is, is a term called rotator cuff-related shoulder pain which uncovers the muscle, covers the tendon, covers the bursal tissue, includes the, the soft tissues around the shoulder, because we're not really certain where a patient's symptoms are coming from. And because of uncertainty regarding imaging, regarding tests we use clinically, probably a lot of people are actually having surgery on tissues that are not causing their symptoms, because we simply just don't know where the, where the symptoms are coming from. And what about hypotheses surrounding shoulder special tests? So there's been a whole battery of shoulder special tests that have been um, recommended for clinicians to perform. These tests have been designed primarily on, um, on anatomical basis, that in a particular position you might be contracting or compressing a particular tissue. Uh, you might be stretching a particular tissue. The problem with the special tests are uh, that all the, all the tissues around the shoulder are innovated. They all have a nerve supply. 
and that we're testing multiple structures per test. And the moment you're testing more than one structure, it's very difficult to know what actual structure you are, you are implicating. So the first thing that we've got is that the special tests are testing multiple structures, so we're not knowing exactly what we're testing. And the other problem is the, the idea of the special tests are that they are designed to either rule in a particular structure or rule out a particular structure. So the way that evidence-based practice is formulated is that when you've got a clinical test that's positive, you need to compare it to a diagnostic test. So for example, um, if someone had diabetes, you'd be comparing the clinical signs such as fatigue and tiredness, increased frequency of, of going to the bathroom against a gold standard test, a blood test, that would help a clinician rule in or rule out the possibility that the patient had diabetes. The gold standard tests in orthopedics are going to be MRI, ultrasound, x-ray, or observation of structural failure during an arthroscopic procedure. The assumption here is that the observation of tissue damage is where the symptoms are coming from. So we compare a test for supraspinatus clinical test against a finding of an ultrasound that the supraspinatus is, is damaged or torn partially or comp completely. But as I mentioned earlier, there's been now a wealth of studies published that show there's a very poor correlation between imaging findings and where symptoms are coming from. So we don't actually have a gold standard reference test to compare the, the clinical tests against. And so in all honesty, the special tests are not special at all. We don't have a a gold standard to, to compare them against. So the special tests, we could say, are simply tests that might provoke symptoms, but you'd be a very brave person to actually say you know where those symptoms are coming from. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss about the correlation between shoulder imaging and pain? We're very fortunate to live in a time where we've got access to imaging. I think the, uh, the first x-rays, uh, from a research point of view, were available to us in about 1895, and from the early part of, of last century, people started assuming for the first time we could see under the skin in people, in living people. And there was an assumption that if you saw something that was different with an X-ray or maybe uh, MRIs and CTs that became available in the 1970s and then in the last decade there's been, a, even longer, last two decades, there's been a, a wealth of people who've been using ultrasound to see structural failure. There's been an assumption for a long time that if you see something different on imaging, it might explain where the symptoms are coming from. But we know very well from, from low back pain research that there's a really poor correlation between what you see on imaging of a, a, an MRI for back pain, the relationship between disc space narrowing, osteophytes, etc., and symptoms. We've started to realize that that's the same case for the shoulder. So we know that up to 96% of people who have no symptoms at all, who have an ultrasound scan, might have findings such as bursal thickening, tendinopathy, partial thickness tears, full thickness tears, labral damage. Um, and so there's been an assumption for a long time that if you see a change on imaging, it explains symptoms, but it clearly doesn't. And you're probably more likely to have a change in imaging if you're asymptomatic as if you are symptomatic. The implication of that's quite serious because what it means is that people who uh, have positive clinical tests such as the orthopedic tests we talked about before and positive imaging findings such as a tear might be recommended that surgery is 
a good option for them. And in many cases it might be, but the problem is if you're making clinical decisions based on, on imaging that can't really tell us where the symptoms are coming from, then a lot of people, maybe 50% of people, will be having operations on tissues that are not causing those, their symptoms. So imaging's wonderful to know there's no fracture, no dislocation, no sinister pathology such as an osteosarcoma, but imaging in many people can't really tell us if you see a, a labral tear or if you see a rotator cuff tear, partial or full thickness, that with certainty we know the symptoms are coming from those structures. Can you elaborate more on shoulder surgery? Yeah, and it's wonderful that we have such specialised clinicians who are able to perform shoulder surgery to repair labrums, to repair rotator cuffs. And, and there's, shoulder surgery is absolutely vital for many patients. And I think, though, there may be, we need possibly more joined up communication between physical therapists, physiotherapists and surgeons, and also more joined up communication with patients. If we're really putting patients at the centre of the journey, as we're supposed to, as we're encouraged to, it really, we really need to be using careful language with our patients. We need to be telling patients, or the surgeons need to be telling patients that the tears may be causing symptoms, but they may not be causing symptoms. That if we look carefully at the research evidence, there's an equal chance of getting better with an exercise-based program for people who are diagnosed with impingement, for people who are diagnosed with partial thickness tears that are atraumatic and full thickness tears that are atraumatic as they would with surgery. So we need to be telling patients that they need not to worry about the tear in many cases, that it's something that happens but doesn't necessarily cause symptoms, that exercise-based approaches are just as effective as surgical-based approaches for many conditions, and that if a conservative-based treatment, an exercise-based treatment, a non-surgical treatment approach isn't helpful, then of course then surgery is a very appropriate procedure to consider, but not to rush to it just because of what the imaging identified in people without trauma. And what about hypotheses surrounding posture and shoulder pain? Sure. So posture is a really interesting area. A lot of patients will feel that posture is causing their symptoms. A lot of patients will have read on the internet that posture is causing their symptoms. And maybe the clinician will have suggested to the patient that maybe their problem is, is posturally related. And posture has been a theme that throughout history we see evidence in ancient Egyptian society, in ancient Greek society, that postures have been a very important influence in terms of health throughout the ages. And, and certainly in the 1940s there were many theories proposed suggesting how there's really one normal ideal posture and many deviations from it. A lot of the research we've done would challenge some of the postural theories, suggesting that maybe there isn't one ideal posture, that posture has a wide variance, and we need to be very careful about telling patients it's their posture. We also have to be very careful about assuming some of the muscle imbalance theories that have been uh, proposed in the literature. Maybe the, the, the validity of some of those theories are maybe not as certain as, as we would like. Certainly research we've done and systematic reviews we've done would challenge that there is an ideal scapular position in conditions such as impingement. A lot of the research that we have published would challenge some of the muscle imbalance theories. It would challenge the concept there is a one normal ideal posture. 
I'm not saying for a minute that posture is not involved. It certainly is in many patients, but maybe we need different ways of testing it other than just visual observation of posture and certain muscle imbalance tests. So we need to maybe be more careful in trying to determine the relationship between posture and symptoms than we have been, and maybe not rush too quickly to implicate posture. Because a lot of the research around posture, a lot of the theories exist, but a lot of the research that we need to support that doesn't currently exist. And all of these hypotheses that we just discussed, why do you think that they're still prevalent despite the research? Oh, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer about why people haven't translated research findings into clinical practice. And, and that just doesn't exist. That's not just not a problem in physiotherapy. That's a problem, I think, through healthcare. There's a wealth of research that if the findings were translated, it would immeasure, immeasurably improve healthcare. But we've seen that historically. We know that when people were um, suffering from scurvy in the British Navy in the, in the 17th century, people identified, uh, in the 18th century, people identified that um, citrus fruits would reduce the prevalence of scurvy. But after the research was done, it took about 50 years to actually introduce citrus fruits into the diet of, of British sailors. We uh, can see examples of that in low back pain where for a long time that we've known that, that maybe bed rest is detrimental and not returning to work quickly as, as quickly as you can is detrimental to outcomes in low back pain. But that took a long time for that to filter through to, to healthcare. And I guess it's just the time required, the conversation required, the reflection required from surgeons, from physiotherapists, physical therapists, to actually look at the research, understand what the research means, and then actually translate those findings into clinical practice. And I think it's just evident through history that, through, through healthcare history, that sometimes it does take a long time to, to translate findings to improve practice. I guess with um, social media, and I guess with the internet, maybe that will happen more quickly, but it still will take some time. And how did you come to question these hypotheses and how have they changed your practice? I've been very fortunate that I've had a career that's involved clinical practice, that I've had amazing mentors in my journey, I've had amazing teachers that have opened my eyes to lots of different alternative ways of thinking. I've been very fortunate that I've also had part of my career is based in university doing my own research, um, but also supporting the research of others. And I guess through conversation, through reflection, through research, it has enabled myself and people I'm, I'm working with to sort of look at the research, look at some of the hypotheses that currently exist and maybe to some extent challenge them. But no doubt in a few years' time, somebody else will be sitting in this chair challenging things that I've, that I've thought as well. So that would be just natural in terms of how research and science conducts itself. Do you think that clinicians should change their practice based on the research, or do you think it's too early? I'm sure everybody who goes to see a healthcare professional wants to get the very best treatment. No one wants to get second or third best treatment. No one wants to give second or third best treatment. So I guess one of the ways to ensure that we're optimizing our management of patients who've come, members of our society really, who've come seeking help and guidance and support and advice for a problem, one of the obligations we all have as healthcare professionals is one, work together, 
we all need to work as teams. That's within our professions and between the professions. And if people are not doing that, they're not op offering optimal care. That's, that's one issue. And also clinicians from all, all areas of healthcare practice have an obligation to look at the research, look at the quality of research, and try and come up with care pathways or loose care pathways that are very much based around multi-professional working and based around looking at research and translating the findings to support practice. And where deficits exist in our research knowledge, and there are many deficits in our research knowledge, what we need to be doing is all working together, contributing to research to fill those deficits. Do you think that we should abandon the traditional shoulder special tests and assessments? Um, no, the shoulder, shoulder special tests have a place. I don't think they're special tests, I just think they are tests that reproduce symptoms. And in most cases, the way I tend to work is seeking from the patient activities or movements or postures, functional activities that they're having trouble with, and then applying a series of assessment procedures to that to see if I can uh, reduce the impact of those procedures. But if a patient isn't sure where the symptoms are coming from, then there is a place that the, the so-called special tests could actually reproduce symptoms. But if people are using the special tests to clinically reason where the symptoms are coming from, or even combinations of special tests to clinically reason where the symptoms are coming from, based on what we were talking about before, that's highly uncertain that that's possible to do. So special tests have a place. They're not special. They're symptom reproduction tests. And, and seeing them beyond that is probably giving them too much credit. I, uh, however, wouldn't say necessarily we need to abandon them, but maybe we need to just to understand the value or the reduced value that they might have in clinical examination. Some, of course, have more importance than others. Do you think there is such thing as a bad shoulder exercise? Yeah, sure there is. A shoulder exercise that increases the patient's symptoms so that they've got more night pain, they've got more pain tomorrow, is probably a poorly constructed exercise. It might not be the exercise itself is bad, it might be the way that it was uh, given, the number of repetitions, the amount of force, the speed of the exercise was given, would probably indicate that it's bad. I try to be as patient focused as possible. And for me, something that, if you want to label bad, would be something that increases pain uh, beyond the time of the exercise that increases pain tonight, increases pain tomorrow. So it might be that that exercise needs to be reformulated, given in a slightly different way. It would, might be that the person who's prescribing the exercise has to think about, is there a different exercise to give, a different way of performing it that doesn't increase pain. What about exercises that a person without any shoulder pain or symptoms may do in the gym, like a behind-the-neck military press, that aren't really considered functional positions? Okay, so that's a really good point. I think there are lots of exercises that people without symptoms do in gyms that have the capacity to cause symptoms because the actual exercise may be thought to be very useful for developing muscle or it's always been done that way. But, but a lot of exercises, I think, for example, flies, 
but there are many other examples that are not done in, in functional planes of movement that don't really have a hugely substantial place to play in daily function may potentially cause problems. However, I don't think necessarily the exercise itself is the problem. It may be the speed or the number of repetitions that the exercise is performed at. And in most cases, if a fitness trainer, if a physio, if a sports and conditioning coach carefully works out an exercise program that's based on very graduated increments that the muscle tendon unit doesn't really detect any change during the progression, then in most cases, so carefully constructed in terms of the volume of the exercise, the number of repetitions, the speed of the exercise performed at, the load that's given, if all those variables are carefully controlled, then most exercises can be performed safely. If the person doing the exercise that without symptoms has a break from an exercise because they are traveling, on holiday, unwell, it's also important when you come back to your exercise programs to come back at a possibly reduced rate so that you again build up slowly and gradually so that the tissue has time to adapt to the exercise that's being given. And can you explain your shoulder symptom modification procedure and how you incorporate it into an assessment? Okay, so as I was mentioning earlier, I became aware a long time ago that it might be difficult to actually use uh, orthopedic tests to identify where the symptoms were coming from. I started reading literature that was suggesting that many people without symptoms could have structural damage in their shoulders. So therefore, I wasn't able to be certain where the symptoms were coming from, from clinical tests or imaging tests. It was also apparent that a lot of the ways that we construct our clinical examination might not necessarily be able to tell me that a patient had this condition or another condition. So when that sort of started to sink into me that I was going to have difficulty coming up with a clinical diagnosis, I started thinking, well, a patient, a member of my society is coming seeking help from me. What is it that I could do to quickly determine if I could make a difference? And, and that also relates to what we were talking about before, this issue that posture may not follow the rules that have been established in the literature. So I came up with a, a system that I use clinically that probably takes about five minutes of time that looks at the relationship between a person's posture, whether it's their spinal posture, their shoulder blade, their scapular posture, uh, relationships potentially between the humeral head and the glenoid fossa, although I'm not quite certain that the tests, even though they're called those things, actually do what I'm describing them as, but just a series of clinical procedures that takes the patient's symptoms, whether it's pain during a push-up, pain lifting the arm, pain tucking the shirt in behind their back, pain during a throw, pain during a swimming action, to see if I can modify, reduce the impact of those symptoms, whether it's pain, a feeling of instability, a feeling of stiffness. And sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't work at all. We know that the procedure is reliable, we've recently published on that, but I actually don't know if it's valid in the sense that if I find something with one of these tests and then introduce that into treatment, we actually don't know if it makes any long-term difference to outcome over another approach with a patient. So that's something more research needs to determine. But what's important to emphasize is that the shoulder symptom modification procedure, which looks at the variables I mentioned a minute ago, 
is very rarely a standalone procedure. As I mentioned, the research evidence suggests that an exercise, a graduated exercise program, is probably the most effective, cost-effective, clinically effective way of treating patients with shoulder problems. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work completely, and therefore we have to have other procedures such as injections and surgery. But the shoulder symptom modification procedure may support, in some cases, an exercise-based approach for people with shoulder problems. So does the shoulder symptom modification procedure drive your management decisions? Yes, so if the patient tells me that one of the techniques of the shoulder symptom modification procedure or a combination of techniques has reduced their symptoms in a, to a level that's meaningful for the patient, then I will use whatever I find as an assessment as treatment. But as I mentioned, it's, it's never really a standalone procedure. It will be embedded within other treatment approaches. Advice is critically important. Good ed patient education is important. Reducing the threat of how the patient's perceiving their symptoms is very important, but also, also exercise-based approach as well. So it, it sits within a, as a holistic as possible approach to managing patients. And how do you explain a shoulder issue to a patient who wants a specific diagnosis? I find that very difficult to do because more often than not, I can't identify the structure that's causing the patient's symptoms. We can say that the symptoms are felt in the area of the shoulder. It's possible, based on excluding other variables, that it may be not pain coming from the neck or the thoracic spine, that because maybe the the way the patient has described the onset of their symptoms, maybe it's because of increasing load through the tissues, looking at the way the patient moves by reducing load, increasing load, it might implicate the rotator cuff tissues. And that's why I've published using the term rotator cuff related shoulder pain, because that to me indicates it could be muscle, it could be tendon, it could be capsular tissue, it could be bursal tissue. There's a whole lot of tissues that could be involved. If a patient pushes me for a specific diagnosis, I'll probably say I'm not capable of giving one. And I'll give the example that in back pain, we often don't know exactly what the tissue is that's causing the problem. And we use terms like non-specific low back pain, which is not really a great term to use, or, or mechanical back pain. And that's probably the same for the shoulder as well. There are some conditions that are diagnosable, such as frozen shoulder. But for the vast majority of conditions, it's probably if we're honest, as surgeons and as physios, it's probably impossible to be certain exactly where the symptoms are coming from. What do you feel is the biggest mistake that clinicians make when dealing with the shoulder? I guess the biggest mistake any clinician can make with a patient is making the patient worry more about their problem. So using terminology such as it's your posture, it's the mass of acromion that's caused, it's ripping into your tendon, it's the tear that's causing your symptoms and you'll need surgery, otherwise the tear will get larger and will become inoperable. Physios who might say, you've got terrible scapular dyskinesis, the scapula's unstable, that you've got this massive problem with your posture and muscle imbalance. So whenever we use language that frightens the patient, that's probably the biggest mistake that we can make. I know in the past you've mentioned the importance of the kinetic chain to the shoulder. 
Are there any specific kinetic chain factors that you assess that may influence the shoulder? I think it's naive for physiotherapists, for a patient who comes in with just a local shoulder problem, just to assume that just a local treatment will be the only thing that that patient needs. It's not how the body functions. So we know, uh, for example, in a tennis serve, that 50% of the energy is transferred from the lower limbs into the shoulder, and the shoulder only contributes 20% uh, of the force of a tennis serve. We know from research and on baseball pitches, if you've got a 25% deficit of energy transfer from the lower limb, the shoulder has to find 35% more power to pitch a baseball at the same speed. And I would challenge anybody who's doing an exercise program to ramp up the treadmill an extra 35% more than they currently run at, to lift 35% more weight immediately than they're currently lifting, because that would introduce overload into the tissues, probably at a level that might cause symptomatic symptoms a bit later on. So the fact that the lower limb is so important in transferring energy into the shoulder, it would be naive for physios just to assume a local treatment is what every patient needs. So we need to consider the impact of the kinetic chain. We need to find ways of assessing in an individual patient the relevance of that kinetic chain in terms of shoulder function. And we need then to make sure that the range of movement, that the strength, the endurance of the lower limb and the ability to transfer energy into the shoulder is sufficient for that individual patient's sport or, or daily functional activity. And what are some psychosocial factors that contribute to shoulder outcomes? So we've contributed to uh, the research knowledge in this area. And here I must acknowledge the work of Rachel Chester, who was a PhD student. I co-supervised her PhD. And she did an absolutely wonderful study looking at over a thousand people with shoulder symptoms and looking at what predicts good outcome at six weeks and six months, or what predicts outcome, good or bad. And what Rachel found in her study, there were the very few physical factors that actually predict good outcome. And a patient's self-efficacy, their belief that they're going to get better is one of the biggest predictors of good outcome. Patients who have high numbers of comorbidities unfortunately don't do very well. Patients who have attained lower levels of education don't do very well. We know that from physiotherapy research, but we also know from surgical studies that very similar variables such as patients' number of comorbidities, uh, level of education, are bigger predictors of outcome than things like rotator cuff tears, the size of the tear, the amount of tendon retraction. We know very sadly that about 50% of people don't understand the health messages and advice we're giving them. So we have to spend a lot of time ensuring that our patients understand what we're talking about, understand the advice we're giving, why we're giving it. So we need the patients to reflect back to us what they've understood, what they haven't understood from our messages, and spend time working on that to try and improve outcomes from a psychosocial point of view than maybe from our concerns always about biomechanical variables. And of course they're important, but maybe they're not quite as important, or maybe the importance of the psychosocial factors, which we haven't always considered, need to be given as much or maybe even more priority. Can you share one interesting and little known fact about the shoulder? Yeah, so the shoulder's an amazing joint. The shoulder's got more mobility than any other joint in the body. It goes through more range of movement. It can tuck our shirts in, it can 
pitch baseballs, it can throw cricket balls, it can serve in tennis. It's got more movement than any other joint in the body, and it's also got the fastest movement of any joint in the body. So if you look at some uh, sports such as baseball, people can move through an arc of 80 degrees and up to 9,000 degrees a second, so they're moving with incredible speed. They're de-accelerating their shoulders at around about half a million degrees a second squared, and this is all occurring in a joint that doesn't have much bony stability. So what's really exciting from my perspective about the shoulder is a lot of the stability and a lot of the movement is totally dependent upon muscle function. So as clinicians, we have to make sure muscle function is working at its, its optimal level for the patient's functional needs in order to maximize re recovery of the shoulder. So an amazing joint. It does explosive activities. We can weight bear through our shoulders. We can take our whole body weight through our shoulders. We use our shoulders to position our hands to perform high precision activities. So really an amazing part of the body. And what are some unknowns about the shoulder that you hope will be answered in future research? So there's lots of unknowns. We don't understand where the pain's coming from. We don't understand the best exercises and the, way, the best way to construct exercises for the shoulder. We don't know the patients who will benefit from a non-surgical approach and surgical approach, so the patients who should be prioritized one way or the other. There's so much uncertainty about injection therapy for the shoulder, so millions and millions of patients every month around the world will be given injections of steroid to treat their tendonitis. We don't really understand the relationship between inflammation and symptoms. We don't really know if injection therapy is the right thing to do for patients. So we've got millions of patients having these procedures without a lot of research to really understand the value or the harm that injection therapy is doing. We don't really understand the relationship between dynamic posture and symptoms. We seem to understand that static posture and symptoms doesn't relate, but dynamic posture we don't know. We don't really understand what surgery is doing in the shoulder, because as I mentioned, a lot of patients will have rotator cuff repairs, but they'll re-tear, but they still have good outcomes. So does that mean the surgery is a placebo, or is it just relatively resting the shoulder, allowing a graduated exercise program? I guess we think we're quite smart, but maybe we're not quite so smart. And we probably know a lot less than actually we think we know. And how can people learn more about you? Oh, I don't know if people want to learn more about me. Uh, I have a website, www.londonshoulderclinic.com. I'm just happy to be able to contribute with my own research, supporting other people's research, writing book chapters. People find that of any value, that's, that's good enough. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes Store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.